Before I begin, I just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. This episode, though a Christmas episode, is probably not for small children. There's nothing graphic in it, but it covers some of the grisly, violent legends behind St. Nicholas and his scary helpers, as well as some slight adult themes. So please don't just put this on for your kids because you saw St. Nicholas in the title, and then leave the room. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, I'll be telling the bizarre legends behind St. Nicholas, and talk about the ominous employees that accompanied him on his transition from an austere bishop to a rotund elf that guides a magical flying sleigh. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's another Christmas creature from Spain. You absolutely don't want to be on his naughty list, because he'll drop down your chimney, eyes glowing red, with a giant knife in hand. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 18, Rusty Chains and Candy Canes. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Today is a look at groups of characters and stories from folklore that have very clearly shaped our cultures. At least Christmas time here in the West. That being said, the main character of our story today, St. Nicholas, is not at all that jolly gentleman who sits up at the North Pole. He was a historical figure, then a legendary saint, then a stern yet kind gift giver, and now he's a hearty, jolly old man checking his list. Before I begin, I just want to acknowledge that I know everyone does not celebrate Christmas. I found these myths and legends surrounding the Americanized version of the Christmas gift giver to be really interesting. I hope, regardless of your background or religious affiliation, you find these stories interesting, and I hope you enjoy them. The real St. Nicholas was the Bishop of Myra in the 4th century. For those of you that know Roman history, he was born at the tail end of the crisis of the 3rd century, and lived well into the reign of Constantine. Basically, he was born into a world of chaos and transition, which only changed more as he got older. Constantine, as you may know, decriminalized Christianity in 313, and the Roman Empire became much more accepting of it. Then Bishop Nicholas was invited to the Council of Nicaea in 325, and there he not only signed the Nicene Creed, but met with Arius, who was spreading a belief heretical to Nicholas about the divinity of Jesus Christ, which we will not go into for several reasons but it was basically the whole reason for calling the council. According to legend, Nicholas demonstrated his displeasure for the man and his beliefs by punching him in the face. Like today, you can't just go around punching people, no matter how much you disagree, and Bishop Nicholas was imprisoned and stripped of his clerical garments. That night in a dream, he was given his garments in a volume of scripture. When the jailer came the next day, he saw Nicholas unshackled and arrayed in his clothes. When the emperor heard of this, Nicholas was restored to his office, and Emperor Constantine personally asked him for forgiveness. In his life as the Bishop of Myra, a city in Greece, he apparently did several miracles. He died in 343, and after his death he was venerated as a saint. But, as you may know, this isn't a history podcast. Sidebar, if you have even a passing interest in Roman history, check out The History of Rome by Mike Duncan. I linked it in the show notes. It was one of my inspirations for this podcast. Now, before moving on, I'm fully aware that St. Nicholas the Saint is still very much revered by people all over the world. 
He's the patron saint of children, sailors, merchants, reformed thieves, brewers, schoolboys, pawnbrokers, and many more across the world. Because this is the Myths and Legends podcast, I'm going to talk about some of the myths and legends that are associated with the saint. Like most of the other ones, I'm not going to comment on what's true and what's not true, but just tell you the stories and let you decide. Also, before moving forward, I just want to give some context as to what I'll be talking about. I won't be discussing all the Christmas gift givers. In fact, this episode is going to stick pretty closely to the Christmas traditions associated with St. Nicholas. So I won't be discussing the myths and legends behind the other December holidays or traditions. I imagine I'll get to those over the course of the podcast, but today's going to stick pretty closely to Christmas, and pretty closely to St. Nicholas in particular. St. Nicholas was a very special child. As a newborn, he apparently stood upright at his first bath and thanked God, which I can tell you as a parent would be more than a little terrifying, because most babies can't even hold their head up at that age, let alone stand up and talk. He only breastfed on Wednesday and Friday to show his desire for self-discipline and abstinence at an early age, and he's considered the inverse of a John the Baptist, because he's given the credit for making his mother sterile after his birth. As soon as he was able to put one foot in front of the other as a toddler, he was right out the door and on the way to church. And that's apparently what helped him become the Bishop of Myra. The last bishop had died, and one of the elders had a vision that the first person to enter the church in the morning would be named Nicholas, and that he would be the new bishop. Nicholas, now almost out of childhood, went to the church bright and early as he always did, only to find the elder sitting there, saying, Welcome aboard, child who wandered in here. You now run the place. And this turned out to be a good thing. Heretic punching aside, Bishop Nicholas was above reproach, and an all-around good guy. Through one of his miracles, he saved Myra from famine, and he battled evil spirits. We have historical record of him being imprisoned during the reign of Emperor Diocletian for being Christian. Sometime in here, his incredibly wealthy family died, and left him the family's largesse. As bishop, he was well-known, and he used to sneak into places and leave alms, gifts, and food for the poor. One particular instance of this is the most famous story associated with this saint. A man had lost everything. In an age of piracy on the Aegean Sea, or when one storm could wreck several ships, fortunes of hundreds could change instantly. The man was racked with guilt because it wasn't just him. He had daughters, and he had no money to pay dowries so it looked like they would remain unmarried. The issue with remaining unmarried at this time? Well, apparently there wasn't much work for them, and they would be forced to resort to prostitution in order to survive. Even if they didn't, and they came of age and continued out unmarried, they would be apparently thought to be prostitutes anyway. It was a bad situation. Their father could barely afford to feed all of them and keep a roof over their heads, let alone pay a hefty dowry to marry off all three of them. Well, the father was up late the night before his eldest daughter came of age, and he heard something thud in the other room. He went to inspect it, and it was a big bag of gold he definitely did not remember being there. He shot to the window, but whoever had thrown it was gone. He counted it, and it was enough for the eldest daughter's dowry. He thanked God. The eldest daughter was married off, and catastrophe was averted for a few years, until the middle daughter came of age. Again, the father was up fretting, because while he'd been able to scrape together a bit, it wasn't enough to marry off the girl. Once again, he heard a familiar plop in the main room, and once again it was enough for a good dowry, 
on the third daughter that her dad was not going to be tricked again. He was going to find this person who had saved his daughters from shame and ruin and thank him so hard. It was then he saw a shadowy figure jog up and toss the gold in. He jumped from the shadows and grabbed the man's cloak. And it was the local bishop. The man thanked him profusely, dropped to his feet, and began kissing them. But Nicholas told him to get up. He told the man any thanks went to God, and he was not to tell anyone of Nicholas's actions. The father almost immediately ignored this and told everyone, and this is the most popular story associated with Nicholas, though some versions say that the father waited after the bishop was dead to tell of his good deed. I'm not sure if this is a later addition, but apparently for the last girl, the gold went right into some stockings she was hanging over the fire to dry. This likely wasn't the origin of the modern Santa Claus putting things in stockings, but it's definitely noteworthy. Other versions have Nicholas coming down the chimney to drop the gold, as well as the father being absolutely horrible and wanting to prostitute his daughters out for cash, but he was convinced to do otherwise by Bishop Nicholas. Okay, there's one more story I'm going to talk about before moving on, and it's one about three travelers. Three young students were walking through a wood, and it was getting dark. It's not said whether they were lost or just running late, but seeing as medieval forests were full of things you don't want to run into, especially in the dark, they needed to find lodging. Along the road, there was a man who's an innkeeper in some stories, and a butcher in others. And as they can begin to see their breaths in the fading twilight, the warm glow of his house and the smell of meat cooking must have been nice. They see him at the window, and call to him, asking if they can come in to stay the night there. He looks at them comes to the door, looks along the road in both directions, sees no one, and tells them to come in. The boys could see he just finished chopping up a pig that was a small and skinny one. It was tough for everyone in this time of famine, and it looked like the butcher was doing all he could to try to keep his family fed and his business running. He said he would be happy to lodge them for tonight. Were they traveling alone? They said they were. They were heading back to school, but they weren't expected for a few more days, so there was no need to rush through the forest at night. It could be dangerous out there. Yes, dangerous out there, the butcher said, and nodded to his wife, who went to the door and barred it. Then she went to the curtains and closed them. Holding a large knife in a smock covered in pig blood, one of the students saw the hardy butcher clench his jaw and grip the knife harder. The oldest one immediately knew the danger they were in and said, You know what? I think we'd rather keep going. Before he was able to finish the sentence, the butcher brought the knife down hard on his neck. The color drained from the face of the other two as they watched their friend collapse, and they tried to scream and scramble to the door. But the butcher got one and then the other. The butcher and his wife robbed them of everything they had. Then... Wordlessly, the butcher chopped them up into smaller bits and put them in a barrel with some brine and put it away in the basement. It was a time of famine and people disappeared in the forest all the time. He would scrub this place clean and besides, blood on a butcher's floor is probably the least suspicious place for there to be blood and no one would want to go rooting through all the barrels he had in the basement. It was tough for everyone in this time and the butcher justified it as just doing what he needed to in order to survive. Days passed, then weeks then months, and no one even came looking for them. Still, the butcher felt guilty, and for seven years he didn't touch the barrel with the remains of the kids. Then, 
one day, an illustrious visitor was passing through. It was Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra. The butcher was happy to have such a guest, and offered him the best of his meats. Will you have some ham, the butcher said. No, the bishop said. Well, would you like some veal, the butcher asked. No, no thank you, the bishop said. Well, what would you like? We have a lot of different meats here. Oh, I know, said Nicholas. Give me a little bit of that pork that has sat in brine for seven years. The butcher gasped, dropped his knife, and ran out the door into the forest. Bishop Nicholas yelled after him, saying that if he repents, God will forgive him. Nicholas then went to the basement, and he knew the barrel. He took a crowbar and pried it open. I won't describe what it probably looked like, because butchering children is about as grisly as I want to get, and describing what they looked like after spending seven years in brine is probably a step too far, especially for a Christmas episode. Nicholas touched the water with three fingers, and through him God reassembled the young men in the water until they sprang out, fully formed, remarking on what a great rest they just had. Now, this is a bit of a strange story. This is one that can't really be traced back to an instance in St. Nicholas's life, but is attributed as possibly being a misreading of a painting. In it, St. Nicholas is standing over three men, and a custom of the time was apparently to make the human smaller in relation to the divine. So the men were just drawn as smaller in comparison to St. Nicholas, the divine. Only the top of the tower is shown, so the three little men look like they're boys, and the top of the tower looks like a barrel. This incredibly bizarre story allegedly sprung from this, and later tellings make the men very clearly into schoolboys and make the tower a barrel, until it became one of the most popular legends associated with St. Nicholas. There are many more stories associated with him, probably because, in a time where his contemporaries were being martyred, he lived to an old age and died in his bed on December 6th, 343. December 6th became St. Nicholas's day. And since he was the patron saint of sailors for miracles I didn't really go over, his story spread far and wide. He was celebrated for his gift-giving, and over the course of hundreds of years, the holiday evolved to include giving gifts on the night before the big feast. Of course, not all children were given presents, only the good ones. The problem? Pious St. Nicholas, though a fervent defender of the faith, was not one to harshly punish children. No. He cared for children and rescued them from decomposing in a pork barrel or being forced into prostitution. Sure, there were instances of him allegedly showing up in dreams of an abbot and beating him with a birch rod until he stopped condemning his memory as too worldly, but that was sort of a one-off instance. At times, he would be presented as ugly or threatening, but that was really an exception to the rule, and St. Nicholas was seen as a stern yet kind gift-giver. Then, something happened. St. Nicholas began to show up with some helpers. I can't seem to find a reliable start to this custom, but someone in the garb of a saint would quiz kids on ecumenical things like verses or psalms. If they knew the correct answer, they would get presents, or fruit, or nuts. With St. Nicholas, though, were creatures. Ostensibly servants of the saint, they came in several forms, but all of them had the same duty— to scare or beat the child into piety or good behavior. Perhaps the most popular of these is Knecht Ruprecht, and my pronunciation is so, so off with that. It means servant or farmhand Robert, and I'll just call him that from now on. I tried and tried to get that down, but I just could not get the German pronunciation. 
In that time, after the Reformation, Protestant Germans and others were not thrilled about celebrating the saint, for obvious reasons. So they said that the Christ child came, which is exactly what it sounds like. He was a little baby Jesus who would come with his little angel wings and blonde hair and give presents to good children. He would come on Christmas Eve instead of December 5th, but there was a bit of a problem with this one. A baby with angel wings, well, just isn't that scary. Enter farmhand Robert. He has a range of depictions, from a more scraggly and unkempt version of Santa Claus to a horned and hairy, almost demonic-like being. He was the one you wanted to watch out for. He would sometimes show up with St. Nicholas as well, and in the times when he's associated with St. Nicholas, he was a foundling baby that St. Nicholas raised up to be his helper. In all depictions, he's a wild man, and sometimes he's a cannibal. He would carry a sack with him, threatening to carry off bad children to horrible places if they didn't get better, and he had another sack full of charcoal, which, in the early days, he supposedly used to beat naughty children. As time progressed, things got more civil, and he would leave coal for bad children, instead of their customary fruit, and a stick for the parent to do the job. He's morphed into a much more forgiving figure, on par with modern conceptions of Santa, and has, at times, moved away from a helper role, more towards being the gift giver himself. The talk of St. Nicholas's helpers leads us, inevitably, to Krampus. Krampus, for all the hype around him this year, 2015, with the movie out, is fairly disappointing. He's a large and ominous satyr that comes with St. Nicholas on December 5th, and he looks like a big hairy demon. He's said to carry around a burlap sack in which to stuff kids, though their demise wasn't quite as mysterious as with farmhand Robert. Krampus would just drop them into the river on his way out of town. Alternatively, he carries a big bucket on his back too, and will carry misbehaving children to hell. He's said to have rusty chains on him, with this being a supposed allusion to a biblical verse about binding the devil, but that's not really clear. His method of enforcement, if children were naughty, was to whip them with a birch switch, or rod. It's not as clumsy or as random as a bag of charcoal. It's a slightly more civilized weapon for a slightly more civilized age. And as an aside, farmhand Robert also carried a birch switch with him from time to time. I just really wanted to use that line. Krampus is from Alpine and Austrian folklore, and not much is known about his origins. There's speculation that he comes from a pre-Christian Alpine tradition, and represents some old pagan god, though there's really nothing definitive. The tradition of depicting Krampus is still very much alive, and while I don't think there are inquisitions of children like there were in the old days, there are large, alcohol-fueled Krampus runs, where groups of people get dressed up as the beast, get drunk, and run through town. Even though he looks like a lot of depictions of Satan, he's definitely not the devil. He wears bells, which were thought to ward off evil spirits, so it's safe to assume that Krampus is not an evil spirit. Nope, he works completely for St. Nicholas, and only does his bidding, though he sometimes steals the show. So yeah, he's not an evil spirit, he's just an extremely evil-looking, terrifying helper who will beat your children with a birch rod, kidnap them, and take them to hell. If you're interested, there's a really funny song on Krampus by J. Dobbs Rosa. I reached out to him, and he let me use it in its entirety at the end of the episode. So stay tuned after the credits if you want to hear that. I've made a post on the site featuring many modern Krampus depictions, as well as some great Austrian postcards depicting the beast. The last one I'll talk about today is Per Fuita. And once again, my pronunciation will be rough, 
but that's French for father whipper. His MO is the same as the others, where he whips bad kids. One thing that's interesting though, is that he relates to the legends of St. Nicholas. The story I told about the butcher who killed the students and hid their bodies in a barrel, this is the butcher. He apparently ran off, thought about his life, came back and confessed to Bishop Nicholas. He either chooses to become St. Nicholas's partner and punisher, or the bishop forces him into it in order to punish him for his crimes. Regardless, that old murderer follows St. Nicholas around, putting his cruel streak to a debatedly better use. There are almost as many different depictions of St. Nicholas's helpers as there are different depictions of St. Nicholas himself. Before I get started, I don't speak many of these languages, or any of them really, so my pronunciations, once again, will be a little rough. There's Bell Snickel in Germany and Pennsylvania, Black Peter from the Netherlands, who is actually currently pretty controversial, there's Bafana in Italy, who comes on the Feast of the Epiphany on January 5th, Vartel in Eastern Europe, Sert in the Czech Republic, Schmutzli in Swiss folklore, and many more. There's a lot of talk about pagan influences on Christmas, in particular, Odin's relation to Santa Claus. So, when Christianity supplanted a lot of other beliefs, it wasn't a clean break. Some of the pagan aspects of the older belief system remained, and what didn't directly conflict with the church was allowed to remain and was assimilated. One instance we've talked about is Krampus, which was believed by the Grimm brothers to be a household spirit that persisted, which the church made subservient to St. Nicholas. I could do a whole episode on pagan influences on Christian celebrations, but one in particular that gets a lot of attention is the relation of Santa Claus to Odin. I was surprised to see it treated as absolute fact on most popular websites, but I couldn't find any evidence to support it. In fact, I found an academic article stating the exact opposite. It said that there wasn't any real support for Odin being Father Christmas or Santa Claus. Odin's gifts to men were restricted to swords and war gear for his warriors, and that, more often than not, he spread mischief rather than goodwill or good luck. Anyone who's listened to even one episode of the Saga of the Volsungs, episodes 3a to 3e, knows that this is exactly what Odin does. Though I wouldn't exactly call starting vicious blood feuds between two kingdoms just mischief. Okay, so we're up to about the 1800s, and St. Nicholas is still more or less intact. So, how did he become the large red man who doesn't have an enforcer with a birch switch following him around? Well, there are a few different theories on that. First, it mostly has to do with a bunch of different traditions coming to America in the 1800s, and everything kind of filtering down into a modern idea of Santa Claus. There are different prevailing ideas on how St. Nicholas came to North America and became Santa, and it was either the Dutch, the Germans, the English, or a combination of all three. The popular thought is that the modern idea of Santa Claus comes from the Dutch name Sinterklaas, which, if you didn't know this, Klaus in German and Klaus in Dutch both mean Nicholas. Santa is a corruption of saint from Dutch and other languages, so Santa Claus is just a mispronunciation of how other cultures say Saint Nicholas. And another popular name for Santa Claus, Kris Kringle, comes from that German baby Jesus, the Christ child, and once again, I can't pronounce it, but it's effectively Christkindle. People mispronounced it, it became Kris Kringle, and that took hold in America. Like I said, there are many conceptions of Saint Nicholas, but according to more than a few sources, the common thought of him being a rotund elf with a reindeer who comes down the chimney and gives gifts was really invented by one poem in 1823, which is now commonly known as The Night Before Christmas. 
the industrial revolutions in mass production, a glut of stories and songs that came out about that time describing a magical character of Santa, and advertisements really cemented the idea of Santa in the United States, which was then exported all around the world. It's not really a myth or legend what happens next, and frankly, I find it a bit boring to look at all the details surrounding the current Santa mythos. There aren't any goat demons, priest punchings, or murders. It's just one ad, story, or song saying, for instance, that St. Nicholas had elves, and yeah, okay, now he has elves. What is interesting is what this humble 4th century priest has been turned into. He grew up in a Roman Empire where martyrdom was a real possibility, and he was imprisoned for his faith. When he got out, he gave freely and openly, and defended his faith with zeal, sometimes enough zeal to get him removed from councils. The legends have him so self-disciplined that he would only breastfeed for two days a week. Now, though, he's known around the world as a portly, magical elf, and kind of a symbol for consumerism. Like the legend of Mulan, and many legends that survived for centuries, St. Nicholas is different things to different cultures. I personally find the earliest versions of him, and the ones with his dark companions, to be the most interesting. It makes you think about what winter really means. There's happiness and celebrations and feasts, but there's also darkness and cold. It reminds you that the world isn't some big, saccharine plaything, and I find it interesting how much the legends of St. Nicholas have changed to wash that away from any of the depictions. It's been a long transformation, from real bishop, to legendary saint, to kind yet stern gift giver, then kind gift giver with tough guy enforcers, to portly elf who will give gifts to good kids and cold to bad kids, to now someone who will just maybe not give presents to bad kids. Maybe. But he probably still will. That's it for this week, and, well, this year. I'm going to be out next week to spend time with family, but I'll be back in two weeks, in 2016, with some much-requested Native American folktales. I want to say thank you to Vvin, aka Salvation, Nissa76, JerseyGem114, Lele2, Chaco Ryan, Mezelboss, Clarylou828, sorry if I said that wrong, Morgan Rinna, Kay Brooksy, Allison Bayer, Luby75, and N. Halifax for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place for now, and it really does help new people find the show. You can find it on iTunes at itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, there's a membership thing on the site. If you'd like to help support the show, that's the best way to do it. It's been an amazing help for me to get better sources and make the show a good bit deeper. For $5 a month, less than the price of 12 candy canes, there are extra episodes with extra stories, the history and culture behind what I cover here, and ebook source packs. If you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Olensaro from Basque folklore in northern Spain. He's a Christmas creature, though he has such an interesting story, and he's not really related to St. Nicholas, that I had to include him as his own separate portion. It's kind of odd that he's a Christmas creature, because his origin is very much opposed to Christianity. He's a giant, one of the Gentiliac who lived in the Pyrenees, and he's the last of his kind. The Gentiliac were gentle giants from a pre-Christian era, and they lived alongside the people. If you see a lone stone structure sitting in a field, seemingly impossible for humans to have built or put there, that was the result of these giants. They were kind, but they liked things the way they were, and were not exactly welcoming of Christianity. Well, they were small in number, and gathered on a mountaintop one day when a bright cloud appeared in the sky. 
No one could look at it except for one nearly blind giant, who announced with sadness that it meant baby Jesus was born in a far off place. The old man asked his fellow giants to throw him off a cliff to avoid the coming Christianization of Spain. Though, really, he had a couple hundred years at least before the church would really have a foothold in Spain, so he could have taken his time. He was too old to move himself, and too large for one person to help him off the cliff, so everyone but a giant named Lincero picked him up and walked him towards the edge. Olincero, standing back, watched in horror as the person carrying the giant in back tripped, and started a chain reaction where all of the people but him stumbled right off the cliff and died. There are other versions of the origin, with everyone just leaving to avoid the coming of Christianity and Olincero sticking around to embrace it. And yet another version is him as a lone foundling whom a fairy gave to a childless couple. He was more of a figurative giant than a literal one, and he carried a big bag of toys around and gave them to children in the village. He died saving children from a burning building. The fairy found him and gave him eternal life to continue to bring joy to children. The joy of handmade wooden toys and not burning to death. So he turned into a Christmas slash winter solstice gift giver. Like many, he's large with a big beard and a bag of toys. And like farmhand Robert, his face is covered in soot. Like a lot of versions of Christmas gift givers, he has a dark side. He cranks the intensity up to 11 and doesn't even use the birch rod. Olincero carries around a scythe. And long ago, parents said he would come down the chimney and cut children's throats as a slight overreaction for staying out too late or not going to bed on time. Like the Krampus and St. Nicholas combo to our modern day conceptions of Santa, the character of Olincero has softened considerably over time. He's now, like Santa, a large and lovable gift giver, with a beard and a pipe. Children carry effigies of him throughout the streets on Christmas Eve, singing carols and collecting sweets. If you're bad, like children the world over celebrating Christmas, you just need to worry about a lump of coal from a row, and not him coming down your chimney, eyes glowing red, with a scythe in hand. That's it for this week. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year to everyone listening. Stay tuned for the full Krampus song by J. Dobbs Rosa. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Every year on Christmas Eve, children fear his name. He looks a lot like Beelzebub, but they are not the same. He travels around with Santa Claus, Saint Nick ain't his friend. He comes from the northern Alps of rural Switzerland. Because he's Krampus, Krampus, I'm telling you all about Krampus, 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 swing your birch switch high. With matted fur and sheep's horns, frankly, dear, he smells. Accompanied by the melody of rusty chains and bells. He'll scoop you up and throw you in his nasty burlap sack. He rears back with a cane and switch and takes a yuletide whack. Krampus, Krampus, don't you know about Krampus? Krampus, Krampus, swing your birch switch high. No Xbox games or candy canes.
made of peppermint It brings the pain of another cane Of corporal punishment So if the kids misbehave You do well to remember To don the garb of Krampus On the 5th of December That's the traditional day for us to celebrate Krampus Krampus, look out kids, he's Krampus, 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 swing your birch switch high. Krampus, Krampus, he's the anti-Santi, Krampus, 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 swing your birch switch high. Merry Krampus, everybody.